The more that you read, the more things you will know. The more that you learn, the more places you'll go. Dr. Seuss. Hi, I'm PJ with ZooFit and welcome to Zoo Notable, where we read books that help change the world and share how we can use that wisdom to change our lives. And whether you're an animal care professional or just a lover of nature and the environment, Zoo Notables helps you grow and level up your life. The word pecan, the fruit of the tree known as the pecan hickory, comes to English from the indigenous languages. Pecan is a nut, any nut. The hickories, black walnuts, or butternuts of our northern homelands have their own specific names. But those trees, like the homelands, were lost to my people. Our lands around Lake Michigan were wanted by settlers, so we were marched at gunpoint along what became known as the Trail of Death. They took us to a new place far from our lakes and our forests. But someone wanted that land too, and so the bedrolls were packed again. In the span of a single generation, my ancestors were removed three times, Wisconsin to Kansas, points in between, and then to Oklahoma. I wonder if they looked back for one last glimpse of the lakes, glimmering like a mirage. Did they touch the trees in remembrance as they became fewer and fewer until there was only grass? So much was scattered and left along that trail. Language, knowledge, names. My great-grandmother, Chanote, wind blowing through, was renamed Charlotte. Names that the soldiers or the missionaries could not pronounce were not permitted. When a language dies, so much more than words are lost. Welcome to probably the most profound zoo notable I feel I've ever done. I'm. Today I'm digging into a remarkable book, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. And so why is this book so profound? Well, just to give you a clue about how much I learned from reading this book, most of my zoo notables, when written out in their entirety, are about 35 to 3,800 words, with the quotes included. But when I finished transcribing my notes from Braiding Sweetgrass, my document was already 5,500 words. And I did pare the ideas down, but honestly, it was a struggle. I could have easily written an hour-long episode about this incredible book. What I appreciated the most about the book was the feeling of Robin, an indigenous person from the Potawatomi tribe, sharing her traditions and wisdom to a new generation so that they could be passed on. I felt reading this book and honoring the native traditions of the original inhabitants of the land on which I live was the least I could do after so much suffering for so long. I have always revered Native Americans, or as they are better suited, called indigenous people, for they revere them for their relationship with the earth. But to be honest, I've never felt connected to their way of life. I mean, I always thought it was their way of life, and I feel more connected to nature than I do, say, a city. I just didn't feel I could practice the indigenous principles. But with braiding sweetgrass, I feel that I've been given permission, invited, and even encouraged to let those traditions live on, not to appropriate, but to revitalize a way of living that is pretty in tune to what I believe. And the main idea that Robin brings up again and again is that of reciprocity, the two-way relationship between people and the planet, give, share, and connect. 
I loved this book so much, and I think that you will too. So let's dig right on in to braiding sweetgrass with big idea number one, the meaning of a gift. Quote, Gifts from the earth or from each other establish a particular relationship, an obligation of sorts to give, to receive, and to reciprocate. The pair of wool socks I buy from the store are warm and cozy. I might feel grateful for the sheep that made the wool and the worker who ran the knitting machine, but I have no inherent obligation to those socks as a commodity, as private property. There is no bond between a polite exchange thank you with the store clerk. But what if those very same socks were instead knitted by my grandmother and given to me as a gift? And that changes everything. I will write a thank you note. I will take care of them. And if I'm a very gracious child, I'll wear them when she visits, even if they're not my favorite. Lewis Hyde, a scholar and writer, notes, It is the cardinal difference between gift and commodity exchange that a gift establishes a feeling bond between two people. Now, Robin talks about her childhood where she cherished the wild strawberries more than store-bought or even field-picked on a farm. It's the difference, as she mentions, between store-bought socks and the one your grandmother made. It's not just about the time and the effort put into the gift that makes it so special. It's the bond between the giver and the receiver. It's important to cherish these intimate gifts, especially those bestowed upon us from the earth. And more than cherishing these gifts, we actually must share them. And this is very much a part of the indigenous people's tradition and how they thrived. But it's also one of the principles that has historically led to misunderstanding. As Robin discusses in Braiding Sweetgrass, she says, That is the fundamental nature of gifts. They move and their value increases with their passage. The more something is shared, the greater its value becomes. Lewis Hyde wonderfully illustrates this dissonance in his exploration of the quote-unquote Indian giver. This expression, used negatively today as a pejorative for someone who gives something and then wants to have it back, actually derives from a fascinating cross-culture misinterpretation between an indigenous culture operating in a gift economy and a colonial cultural culture predicated on the concept of private property. When gifts were given to the settlers by native inhabitants, the recipients understood that they were valuable and were intended to be retained. Giving them away would have been an affront, but the indigenous people understood the value of the gift to be based on reciprocity and would be affronted if the gift did not circulate back to them. Many of our ancient teachings counsel that whatever we have been given is supposed to be given away again. And later in the book, in A Constellation of Lilies, Robin Wall Kimmer further says, we are showered every day with gifts, but they are not meant for us to keep. Their life is in their movement, the inhale and the exhale of our shared breath. Our work and our joy is to pass along the gift and to trust that what we put out in the universe will always come back. So what gifts are you particularly grateful for? How can we cherish these gifts and share them so that they may grow exponentially for the rest of the world? Big idea number two, use it respectfully or lose it. Quote, the dean looked over the glasses that had slid down his nose, fixing my graduate student with a pointed stare and directing a sidelong glance toward me. Anyone knows that harvesting a plant will damage the population. You're wasting your time. And I'm afraid I don't find this whole traditional law knowledge thing very convincing. 
getting scientists to consider the validity of indigenous knowledge is like swimming upstream in cold, cold water. They've been conditioned to be skeptical of even the hardest of hard data, so that bending their minds towards theories that are verified without the expected graphs or equations is too much. Couple that with the unblinking assumption that science has cornered the market on truth, and there's not much room for discussion. In our experiment, the plots were subject to one of two harvesting methods, carefully pinching stalks or simply pulling them out. Lori, the graduate student conducting experiment, took half of the stems in each, in each plot, pinching them off one by one carefully at the base and yanking up the tuft and leaving a small ragged gap of sod in other plots. As a control, she left an equal number of plots alone and did not harvest them at all. Her statistical analysis were all sound and thorough, but she hardly needed graphs to tell the story. Across, from across the field, you could see the difference. Some plots gleamed shiny golden green, and some were dull and brown. The committee's criticism hovered in her mind. Anyone knows that harvesting a plant will damage the population. The surprise was that the failing plots were not the harvested ones as predicted, but the unharvested controls. The sweetgrass that had not been picked or disturbed in any way was choked with dead stems, while the harvested plots were thriving. Even though half of all the stems had been harvested each year, they quickly grew back, completely replacing everything that had been gathered. In fact, producing more shoots than were present before the harvest. Picking sweetgrass seemed to actually stimulate growth. Some of the plants that grew the best were the ones that had been yanked up in handfuls. But whether pitched singly or pulled in a clump, the end result was nearly the same. It didn't seem to matter how the grass was harvested only that it was. Lori's graduate committee had dismissed this possibility from the outset. They had been taught that harvesting causes decline, and yet the grasses themselves unequivocally argued the opposite point. It is our way to take only what we need. I've always been told that you never take more than half. If we use a plant respectfully, it will stay with us and flourish. If we ignore it, it will go away. If you don't give it respect, it will leave us. Our elders taught that the relationship between plants and humans must be one of balance. People can take too much and exceed the capacity of the plants to share again. That's the voice of hard experience that resonates in the teachings of never take more than half. And yet, they also teach us that we can take too little. If we allow traditions to die, relationships to fade, the land will suffer. Now, we should cherish and share the gifts that we receive from the earth. But even more importantly than that is using those gifts. So often we think that if we just leave the earth and wildlife alone, things will just improve on their own. But honestly, that's not exactly how the nature of the wild works. As Robin and her graduate students' experiment shows, many plants, not just sweetgrass, need humans and actually benefit from our harvesting, just as we benefit from harvesting these plants, as long as we do it respectfully and don't squander. It reminds me of the wisdom from the wolves when they were reintroduced to Yellowstone. In a way, you can call hunting a type of harvesting, although yet wolves do it year-round. They definitely hunt the way indigenous people harvest. They don't take more than they need, and because of the way they hunt weak and older animals, the elk herds are actually stronger for it. This makes the relationship two-way between elk and wolves. 
Wolves need elk, but the elk thrive because of the wolves, as do the forests and other animals in the ecosystem. The idea of using the gifts respectfully also demonstrates to me the importance of sharing our gifts with the world regularly. Otherwise, it just withers up and dries out. Now use your skills that you have honed and trained daily, but use it respectfully, not greedily to better just your own life, but to help make the world a better place. When we use our gifts, they don't dwindle, they actually grow. So what are your gifts? Just think about that and write them down. Is it creativity? Do you have a knack for gardening or teaching or building things? Do you make beautiful art? Just use these gifts. Use them wise and respectfully each and every day. And then watch our skills grow even more with each practice. Before we continue with our Zoo Notable, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. I couldn't do these notables without them. So we'll be right back after these messages. Big idea number three, how to harvest honorably. Quote, the guidelines for the honorable harvest are reinforced in small acts of daily life. But if you were to list them, they might look something like this. Know the ways of the ones who take care of you so that you can take care of them. Ask permission before taking. Abide by the answer. Never take the first. Never take the last. Take only what you need. Take only what, that which is given. Never take more than half. Leave some for others. Harvest in a way that minimizes harm. Use it respectfully. Never waste what you have taken. Share. Give thanks for what you have been given. Give a gift and re reciprocity for what you have taken. And sustain the ones who sustain you, and the earth will last forever. Now notice that har Arnival Harvest does not say don't take. Instead, it offers inspiration and a model for what we should take. It's not so much of a do list of do nots as a list of do's. Do eat food that is honorably harvested and celebrate every mouthful. Do use technologies that minimize harm. Do take what is given. This philosophy guides not only our taking of food, but also any taking of the gifts of Mother Earth, air, water, and the literal body of the Earth, the rocks and soil and fossil fuels. Taking coal buried deep in the Earth, for which we must inflict irreparable damage, violates every precept of the Code. By no stretch of the imagination is coal given to us. We have to wound the Earth and water to gouge it from Mother Earth that honorably harvest our gifts. Okay, so on the literal and indigenous level, this rings true about our natural resources or the gifts from the earth, the food, soil, forests, water, and everything that we use for surviving and thriving. Energy and fuels are gifts, but we must obtain them in a respectful manner. We must use them in a respectful manner too. Should you drive your car when your destination is only a couple blocks away? Should I get the cheap processed packaged food over the locally sourced whole clean produce? Which of these actions would you consider more honorable? I also like the idea of honorably harvesting our gifts that we give back to the world. Those gifts that we discussed in the last big idea, those creativity, those skills. 
Honorable Harvest maintains sustainability. Don't take more than you need and leave some for others. Don't waste. So I was curious if the Honorable Harvest principles apply to our honed skills and our gifts. And upon reflection, I believe it does. Now, to show my point, I'm going to share a personal story. My husband is an artist who practices daily art. And I mean daily, every day. He uses his gift regularly. And for the last eight years, I've seen his skills grow exponentially. Many days after practicing for so long, he can work on his art for hours at a time. But A, it didn't start out that way. And B, he doesn't force himself to practice his art for hours every single day. Some days he doesn't feel like it. Some days he's getting a kidney transplant and doesn't have the time for a full two or three hour session. But Chris honorably harvests his art. He has, a, he has set a minimum time frame of 30 minutes a day. And for the first few months, he met his goal and then stopped. Because taking on too much in the beginning is a great way to experience burnout. And so often I see folks super stoked and excited to get started on their exercise program. They jump right in, working out every day for an hour. But in the beginning, an hour every day of the week, that's just not sustainable. Most, if not all of these individuals, experience burnout very quickly. They quit the gym or their program, and they fall back to their old ways. They're not harvesting honorably. And I also have to remind myself that, honorable, that the honorable harvest applies to other behaviors, too. Technology and social media are gifts. They connect people from around the world, but if exploited, if not harvested with pure intentions, we can waste time, energy, and even our sanity by scrolling endlessly. When we take more than we need, when we do not share, and when we disrespect the gift that the earth and the universe has given us, we become something the indigenous people's idea of a terrifying monster, which is big idea number four. Beware the Wendigo. Quote, The Wendigo is a legendary monster of our Anishinaabe people, the villain of a tale told around the fire to scare children into safe behavior, lest this boogeyman makes a meal of them, or worse. This monster is no bear or howling wolf, no natural beast. Wendigos are not born, they are made. They are human beings who have become cannibal monsters. But the Wendigo is more than a mythic monster intended to frighten children. Born of our fears and our feelings, Wendigo is the name for that within us which cares more for its own survival than for anything else. So we should beware the Wendigo. The monster Robin describes in her book is thought to be a human whose selfishness has overpowered their self-control to the point that satisfaction is no longer possible. In fact, the name's root meaning is translated loosely into thinking only of oneself. Now, unfortunately, I do feel that the Wendigo has very much taken over our lives. The monster resides in all of us and takes form when we overindulge in self-destructive behaviors, because that is what Wendigo is, self-destruction. When we become addicted to alcohol or drugs, to gambling, to social media, to video games, shopping, or overeating, this is the Wendigo. In Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin also shares how Wendigo has taken over the world. She says, they are everywhere you look. 
They stomp on the industrial sludge on Onondaga Lake and over a savagely clear-cut slope in the Oregon Coast Range where the earth is slumping into the river. You can see them where coal mines rip off mountaintops in West Virginia and in oil slick footprints on the beaches of the Gulf of Mexico. A square mile of industrial soybeans, a diamond mine in Rwanda, a closet stuffed with clothes, Wendigo footprints all. They are the tracks of insatiable consumption. So many have been bitten. You can see them walking in the malls, eyeing your farm for housing development, running for Congress. So how does one even begin to defeat such a fierce and terrifying monster? The simple answer is abundance. Quote, here is the arrow that weakens the monster of overconsumption, a medicine that heals the sickness. Its name is plenty. When abundance reigns, the hunger fades away, and with it, the power of the monster. Gratitude plants the seed for abundance. Gratitude for all of the earth has given us, lends us courage to turn and face the Wendigo that stalks us, to refuse to participate in an economy that destroys the beloved earth, to line the pockets of the greedy, and to demand an economy that is aligned with life, not stacked against it. It's easy to write harder to do. Gratitude plants the seed for abundance. It's like what Tal Ben-Shahar said in his book, The Pursuit of Perfect. When we appreciate something, it appreciates. The Wendigo is weakened when we cherish and respect the gifts we are given, when we use them honorably and share our gifts with the world. When we think only of ourselves, when we overindulge, we are feeding the Wendigo. But remember, there is no satiating this monster. Feeding only leads to more hunger. So we must be preventative in starving the Wendigo. And when we feed them accidentally, because we are human, and sometimes we falter, we can fight back by practicing gratitude and the honorable harvest. Letting the gift grow in a pure and positive way. Then the Wendigo shrinks, not disappearing, but weakened and powerless. And finally, folks, we have big idea number five. The earth loves us back. It came to me while picking beans, the secret of happiness. How do I show my girls I love them in a morning in June? I pick them wild strawberries. On a February afternoon, we build snowmen and then sit by the fire. In March, we make maple syrup. We pick violets in May and go swimming in July. On an August night, we lay out blankets and watch meteor showers. How do we show our children love? Each in our own way, by a shower of gifts and a heavy rain of lessons. Maybe it was the smell of ripe tomatoes or the oriole singing or that certain slant of the light on the yellow afternoon and the beans hanging thick around me. The land loves us back. She loves us with beans and tomatoes, with blackberries and bird songs, by a shower of gifts and the heavy rain of lessons. She provides for us and teaches us to provide for ourselves. That's what good mothers do. And folks, this is the big idea to end all big ideas. Robin asks us to put away our scientist mindset for one moment and imagine, what do you suppose would happen if people believe this crazy notion that the earth loved them back? And she asked this of one of her classes and the thought brought a floodgate of responses. One student summed it up, you wouldn't harm what gives you love. 
So can the earth love us back? I mean, how is this possible? And Robin says, no one would doubt that I love my children. Even a quantitative social psychologist would find no fault in my list of loving behaviors, nurturing health and well-being, protection from harm, encouraging individual growth and development, desire to be together, generous sharing of resources, working together for a common goal, celebration of shared values, interdependence, sacrifice by one for the other, and creation of beauty. Here's the thing. Again, Robin bringing back the theme of reciprocity and strengthening our relationship with the earth. She says, knowing that you love the earth changes you, activates you to defend and protect and celebrate. But when you feel that the earth loves you in return, that feeling transforms the relationship from a one-way street into a sacred bond. The earth does love us back. Nothing more needs to be said. The earth loves us, it provides for us, and as long as we cherish the gifts, as long as we use them respectfully, we harvest them honorably and do not exploit or squander them. I cannot think of another more beautiful way to honor the planet than to treat the earth as though the earth loves me back, because she most certainly does. All right, so there you have it, a very actually shortened version of all the great wisdom from Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. I don't feel I've honestly done her book nearly the justice it deserves. So all I can really say is grab the book for yourself, read it, and cherish the incredible lessons the earth and the indigenous people have to offer. I'm going to close up with a few quotes from Braiding Sweetgrass. These are all from Robin Wall Kimmerer. She says, the well-being of one is linked to the well-being of all. When food does not come from a flock in the sky, when you don't feel the warm feathers cool in your hand and know that a life has been given for yours, when there is no gratitude in return, that food may not satisfy. Something is broken when the food comes in a styrofoam tray wrapped in a slippery plastic, a carcass of a being whose only chance at life was cramped was in a cramped cage. That is not a gift of life. It is a theft. Robin says, to me, an experiment is a kind of conversation with plants. I have a question for them, but since we don't speak the same language, I can't ask them directly and they won't answer verbally. I smile when I hear my colleagues say, I discovered X. That's like Columbus claiming to have discovered America. It was here all along. It's just that he didn't know it. Experiments are not about discovery, but about listening and translating the knowledge of other beings. We spend our beautiful, utterly singular life on making more money, to buy more things that feed but never satisfy. It is the Wendigo way that tricks us into believing that belongings will fill our hunger when it is belonging that we crave. She also says the parallels between the adaptations evolved by plants and the needs of the people are indeed striking. In some native languages, the term for plants translates to those who take care of us. And finally, Robin tells us, people often ask me what one thing I would recommend to restore the relationship between land and people. My answer is almost always plant a garden. It's good for the health of the earth and it's good for the health of people. 
A garden is a nursery for nurturing connection, the soil for cultivation of practical reverence. And its power goes far beyond the garden gate. Once you develop a relationship with a tiny little patch of earth, it becomes a seed itself. Something essential happens in a vegetable garden. It's a place where if you can't say I love you out loud, you can say it in seeds and the land will reciprocate in beans. That's all I've got for this wonderful book. Let me know your thoughts. What big idea resonated with you the most? And how can you incorporate that into your life starting today? And share some of your favorite books that you love to see a Zoo Notable on. A gigantic thank you to my patrons, Rochelle, Laura, Sarah, Liz, and Stephanie. Keep working on becoming the best version of yourself today, tomorrow, and forever. For you, your community, the animals, and the planet. Take care, and I will see you all next time.